Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Today we're going to conclude, I was going to say continue, we are, but we're going to conclude our series in Acts chapter 2 that's called Power. And we're focusing this week, the last two weeks, and then this week, Back on Acts chapter 2, really verses 1 through 4, a few verses after that we'll get to today as well, about the day of Pentecost. So Pentecost is a Jewish festival that people from all over gather into Jerusalem to celebrate this, one of the major feasts of Judaism. And when they're there, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit arrives just as Jesus had promised about 10 days before this day. He told his disciples who were gathered there to watch him ascend into heaven. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit, and you'll be filled with power to be my witnesses. So that's why this series is called Power. So 10 days after Jesus says this, there's about 120 or so followers gathered together. They're praying for the Holy Spirit to come. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And then let's read this one more time, Acts 2, 1 through 4. And we'll launch off today in our final week in the Power series. Acts 2, verse 1. Here's what happens. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So the last two weeks, we looked at the first two phenomena that are listed here, uh, one last week, the wind, the sound of the wind, so this is an audible sign of the Holy Spirit's arrival, the sound of a mighty windstorm that filled the room where they were sitting. Two weeks ago, we looked at the fire that they saw that appeared on top of each of them in this room. And so today, we're going to look at this third phenomenon that occurs in Acts 2, 1 through 4. And that is when, they, when the, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they had this ability to speak in other languages, or as you've heard, tongues. So we're going there today, so buckle up. I know Kim said, maybe you've been to church and don't want to go back ever again. Maybe after today, that'll be you. Uh, I don't know, but we will see. So we're going to talk about speaking in tongues a bit today, but what we're talking about is broader than just that. That's what people focus on and fixate on is the sign of the Holy Spirit's coming or one of the signs, but really it's a broader spiritual experience that these disciples had. And it's what we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit or spirit baptism. So if I use those interchangeably, it's because those are interchangeable terms. The baptism in the Holy Spirit or spirit baptism is what we're talking about today as we talk about the baptism of power. So when I talk about spirit baptism, there's a lot of different people that could be in the room or could be watching or listening. So maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've never heard of this before. You're like, I don't know what this is. This is going to be a great introduction for you about what this actually is and what it means moving forward in the book of Acts and even today. Maybe you've heard of spirit baptism and you're uneasy about it, you're unsure about it, maybe you're skeptical about it, so maybe this will be a reintroduction for you about what this is in a different way at a different time. Maybe you've heard about this and you're open to the idea, but you've never experienced that for yourself. So maybe for you today is going to give you a deeper understanding or a deeper hunger for this experience for you. Or maybe you've experienced this for yourself and you know all about this, so today is just going to be a great refresher uh, for you to really maybe understand the why behind the what that you've experienced. And I'm going to ask something of you that I never ask. Uh, I'm going to ask that you trust me today as we journey through this, okay? Now, not because it's me, but because I want you to trust, hopefully you've been around long enough, that you trust me to preach the Bible, Okay, what the Bible says, not what a denomination teaches, not what I learned in a Bible college class, but what the Bible says, okay? Because this is a topic that is, for whatever reason, although it was very normal in the first century church, in today's church, it is very much abnormal, or it appears, to, it seems like it is, it can be even divisive. So I'm going to ask that you trust as we go through this, that I'm going to lead you just where the Bible leads us and try to go no further than that, all right? 
So let's, let's, it's going to help to know what we're talking about. So let's try to do, use a working definition of this spiritual experience that we call the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Okay? Here's the definition that we're going to work through today. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary work in the life of a Christ follower, which is a gift from God and accompanied by a physical sign for the purpose of spirit-empowered ministry. That's a lot. We're going to work through it today. Let me read it again, then we'll work through it. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is a secondary work in the life of a Christ follower, which is a gift from God and accompanied by a physical sign for the purpose of spirit-empowered ministry. We're going to work through the really four main parts of this definition this morning to understand, I hope, what this is. But let's, let's ask this first. Where does this term come from, the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Who came up with that term? Where does it come from? Go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 5, and you'll read the words of Jesus himself. He says this, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is not some crazy Pentecostal kook that came up with this term. This is not some fringe group of people who broke off in the Reformation that came up with this term. This is from the words of Jesus, the mouth of Jesus himself. Some of the final words he says coin this phrase, and then in verse 8, which we don't have, but in verse 8 he says, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in verse 8 he says, gives you power to be my witnesses. So he, he coins the phrase and explains the purpose of it, which we'll get to before we're done here today. So let's go through these four main parts that I hope will serve as a guide to this uh, spiritual experience, what it is and what it does. The first part of the baptism of power is it's a secondary work in the life of a Christ follower. A secondary work, which means it occurs after salvation. So this is not taught as much, I don't hear this as much anymore, really, as it maybe we did years and decades ago, but this is not a salvation issue. This is not a salvation experience. This is a secondary additional work after salvation. And we know this because the people in Acts 2, when this happened to them, they were already believers in and followers of Jesus when this experience happened to them. So let's go up to John chapter 20, right, sort of right before Acts 1 sort of begins. Uh, this is Easter Sunday, a few weeks actually before Pentecost. Um, right after Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples hear about it. There are a couple of eyewitnesses to his resurrection, but the other disciples just hear the report. But that evening, here's what happens. John chapter 20, verse 19. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So, before Acts 2 happens, this is clear-cut evidence that the disciples, the apostles, the followers in the upper room in Acts 2 are already believers in and followers of Jesus. Now, they, pro now, they were already before, I think before this moment. They already believed in Jesus, but this is a different thing. So at that, up to that point, they believed in Jesus as their Jewish Messiah, that's one thing. But now is the first opportunity that they have to believe in him as Savior and risen Lord. They couldn't have done that before he died and rose again. So their belief they had before is good, but now it's actually what every Christian since then has believed. That Jesus actually died on the cross for my sins in my place, and then he defeated death on Easter Sunday by rising from the dead. In this moment, they have that salvation experience, if you will. This is the first time it's even available to them to believe as their crucified Savior and their risen Lord. So then, in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, they're already believers in Jesus, okay? So this Holy Spirit coming in Acts 2 is not to save them. They're already saved, if you will. And we see this in Acts 1, verse 15. It says it clearly. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. This is when they're choosing the apostle to replace Judas. It says clearly they're already believers. So it, I, I feel like some points for me, I'm beating a dead horse but especially if this is new to you, I want you to really understand a couple of really important keys on spirit baptism. The first important key is, 
it is, again, not a salvation issue. So the only requirements for salvation are the same ones that the disciples had in John 20. Believe in Jesus that he took your sins on himself on the cross, taking your place on your cross for your sin, and then he rose from the dead and he's victorious over death. That's the only requirement for salvation. This experience in Acts 2 is a secondary work. So people who have not experienced spirit baptism, who haven't experienced spiritual gifts, they are not second-class Christians. Okay? They're not class B Christians. They're not less than but I will say there is more to experience of the Holy Spirit than simply salvation. There's more that God offers that Jesus sent that the Holy Spirit offers than that that he has available for us. So that's, that's the first part of that first idea here. Let me focus. It's the, the same first point again is that uh, this is a secondary work in the life of a Christ follower. So let me focus on the second part of that statement. This is a gift that is still available to be experienced today for Christ followers. So there's, there's two schools of thought on spirit baptism and spiritual gifts. One class or one school of thought is what's called cessationism. And that is the belief that the spiritual gifts, tongues included, any of this was only for the original apostles or that first generation of Christians in Acts. But after that, it's, no, it's, not, necess, it's not really available anymore. It's not real. It's not genuine. It's not available today. That's a cessationist point of view. Then there's the continuationist point of view, or the continuous point of view, and that is that there seems to be nowhere in the Bible that gives us a sell-by date on this, like on your carton of milk or your, anything in your house. There's no expiration date in Scripture on spiritual gifts, spirit baptism, any of that. And that's, that's, where, that's where I fall into place. And again, I, I have never, uh, even in the last couple of weeks, in kind of agonizing over this message, uh, I really tried to poke as many holes in this as I could just to ensure it's not just what I was grown up in or, or what I, how I was raised or anything or what, the denomination that, to which I uh, belong, uh, but that it, it's biblical. So I, I've still not found any convincing biblical evidence to show that the gift ceased in the scripture. I've heard semi-convincing historical arguments that I don't, they're, they're not really, uh, even like people that I really respect, other pastors and leaders and writers and authors uh, and scholars, I'm just not convinced that there's any biblical evidence that that has ceased. L let me show you here in Acts 2.39, the end of Peter's sermon here after this happens. Here's what he says. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. So a cessationist would say, well, Peter's only talking about the promise of salvation. And I would say, I agree. I think he is talking about the promise of salvation. However, I think he's also talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised them in Acts chapter 1. He's talking about both. Because you look at the context of the sermon. Peter speaks up in this sermon because of these signs that happened the wind, the fire, the tongues, the people outside the room, even the people really inside, don't know exactly what's just happened. So Peter's sermon primarily, initially, is concerned about explaining what they've just witnessed. Then he does get into preaching Jesus and the gospel in that, and people are saved as a result, but he's doing both things here. So I think I don't, it's not a stretch at all to say that Peter is saying this promise of salvation is to you, your children, and all those far off, meaning us even today, and he's also saying, he's saying salvation is available and also this spirit baptism, this promise is available to you, your children, and all those afar off, which would be us. So it's a both and. Let me give you one more uh, scripture here that a cessation might use to say, well, it's not for today. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 8 through 10. And then later on, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 14 quite a bit talking about the gift tongues and spirit baptism first corinthians 13 now we think of this chapter as the love chapter right like i use this chapter in weddings all the time when you look at the context of where first corinthians 13 is placed it's in between two chapters on spiritual gifts first corinthians 12 is talking about spiritual gifts we'll read them later on uh, chap chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts used in a corporate worship setting right in the middle is chapter 13 so what he's doing is he's anchoring this whole idea of spiritual gifts in the context of love. It's got to be rooted and grounded in love or it's meaningless. He even says in chapter 13, I could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but if I have love, it doesn't mean anything. 
So that's why that's in the middle there. That's the real context of 1 Corinthians 13. Let's look at verses 8 through 10 and see what he says about this. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless." So a cessationist would say, well, Paul says it's going to become useless. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all these gifts are going to be useless. But notice what he says here. When the time of perfection comes, is that right now? Is this the time of perfection? You'd have to look very far for very long to answer no to that question, quite honestly. This is not the time of perfection. He's not, and some will try to, again, turn this into a church age debate. Well, that, that means after the first church age ends, then we, but that, no, that, that really doesn't make any sense to me either. So he's saying this time of perfection, it, there's only one thing that can be. It's a futuristic time and place in which we are all in heaven, which is the final place of perfection. So eventually, because then we won't need a spiritual gift of tongues to communicate with languages. We won't need interpreters for however it's going to be up there. We'll be able to understand everything that's going on. We don't need a special experience of God's Spirit in heaven because we're going to be with Him in His full glory forever and ever. So these spiritual gifts aren't going to be necessary in heaven or needed in heaven, but they are necessary and, and needed now. It's an experience that we can have. So then at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul ends his near his most of his letter by saying this so my dear brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues i find that to be a pretty clear thing would for continuation do not forbid speaking in tongues eagerly desire to prophesy so uh now get that's there i won't say that i wrote it down but i'm not going to say it no i'm not, I'm not i thought about it i'm not going to do it say this though the thing with with cessationists is everything else that paul says uh, they would take as let's do that right now but then we take the spiritual gift stuff and say well no well that part and that chapter in this section and that verse is not for today but everything else is i just don't find that to be a great way to read the bible or live the bible because i can do that with anything i want well i don't like the this topic in the bible because it i don't like it so i'm got, i'm going to pull that out we can go down a slippery slope very quickly if we approach the bible that way that's why acts 2 is going through acts in this way i think is really important because when we hit this let's talk about it so otherwise i could just skip this all together for the rest of time and not have to worry about uh what anyone's thinking or what their experience has been uh but we're we're gonna we're gonna hit that so again spirit baptism is a secondary spiritual experience for christ followers and it, it, it extends, I think, biblically, and there's more I could talk about on that, but I'm going to get through all this in one week. I'm not going to go through this several weeks. But I do think, biblically, we see it's not just from Acts 2 or just for the book of Acts or just for the New Testament, but it's even through today and then beyond until we reach that place of perfection. Okay? The second part of spirit baptism, the second part that we really focus on big time, but I'm just going to briefly talk about it, introduce it, is the sign, the physical sign that accompanies spirit baptism, and that is this ability to speak in unknown languages or in tongues. So we'll, we'll talk about this in a different way moving forward, but let's just quickly, what I want to do is show a pattern in the book of Acts of spirit baptism leads to this, this speaking in other languages or tongues. It, it, one follows the other. Okay, so Acts 2, we see it right here. They are, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, verse 4. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in these other languages. So there's the first pattern. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is sent to preach to a group of Gentiles to a man named Cornelius and his family. He has a vision about preaching to him, so he goes, preaches the gospel to them. They're saved. They're baptized in water as a sign of their outward commitment to Jesus. And then it says... Paul, or this is, did I say Peter? I meant to say, or I did say Peter. It is Peter. I'm right. I'm getting ahead of myself here. In, in Acts 10, verse 46, after they are saved and baptized, it says, then the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, and they began speaking in tongues. So it's the same thing from Acts 2, filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues is a sign that accompanies that experience. Acts chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. He comes across this group of people that for some reason he assumes are disciples of someone. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you first believed? And they say, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit. What is that? 
And so he says, well, under whose baptism were you baptized? They say, well, we're disciples of John. That'd be Jesus' cousin. So Paul preaches the gospel to them. They are saved in the name of Jesus. They are baptized in water in the name of Jesus. And then it says, Paul puts his hands on them. And then it says, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. So again, we have three instances here, the same method, the same uh, pattern here. The Spirit came on them or filled them and they spoke in these languages or these tongues. There's a fourth one in Acts 8 that is implied. I'll explain it, but there's an implication of the same pattern, even though it's not explicit here. So in Acts 8 in Samaria, uh, this region sort of in the middle of, of Israel that Jesus had an interesting uh, history with, there's been reports from the church in Jerusalem that the Samaritans are putting their faith in Jesus. They're becoming converts of Jesus now. So they send Peter and John to Samaria to pray for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, we see the same thing. They've already believed in Jesus. They're already saved. They're already followers and disciples, but they're praying for a secondary work in the life of these believers. So it says here that Peter and John, the same sort of pattern, laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it doesn't say explicitly that they spoke in tongues. What it does say is there was a man named Simon who was watching this happen. And when they received the Holy Spirit, he saw something, he witnessed something that was amazing to him. And he even says to Peter and John, that's a really neat trick. Can you teach me? I'll, I'll pay you if you can teach me how to lay my hands on people so they can do what these people are doing. And of course, Peter and John say, yeah, that's not how this works at all. That's not how the Spirit works. And so they, set, they sort of put him in his place. But he saw something. He heard something. He witnessed something. Now, uh, Luke tells us that from, from his vantage point, that the Holy Spirit came on them, and then something else happened. I think, I think based on these other three uh, patterns that we see, again, it's not a stretch to assume that these people then spoke in these other languages. Simon saw this. And he wanted this power to be able to have people do this if he put his hands on them as well. So it's the same pattern, this physical sign that we see that accompanies this event. A follower of Jesus is baptized in the Holy Spirit, and then the physical sign that accompanies that is this language or these tongues. So let's get then into the third part of the definition, and we'll continue this idea of tongues because it, it flows into this last part, or this third part a little bit too. Both the experience of spirit baptism and the sign that accompanies it are a gift from God, okay? Both the experience and the sign are a gift from God. Uh, so let's read this, 1 Corinthians 12. Again, we'll be in 12 and then uh, in chapter 14 here in a little bit. But 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 7 through 11. I just want to establish the idea that these are spiritual gifts that we're talking about from God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul writes, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. The, the same Spirit gives great faith to another, and to someone else, one, the one Spirit gives the gift of healing. He gives one person the power to perform miracles, and another the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another Spirit. Still another person is given the ability to speak in unknown languages or tongues, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. It is the one and only Spirit who distributes all these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. So I read that in context, that tongues is mentioned as a gift along with many other spiritual gifts. It is not the only one. It's not the most important one. I Paul's pretty explicit. He thinks prophecy is, is the highest spiritual gift. And then I think tongues and interpretation together, which we'll get to in a minute, work together to be maybe second or third on the list. But the point of this is to, to show this is a gift from God. This experience of spirit baptism and the, the uh, sign that accompanies it is a gift from God. Now, when you receive a gift, it's important to know how to use that gift properly, isn't it? It's important to have maybe an instruction manual to tell you, what is this for? How do I use it? So for instance, if I'm given a brand new screwdriver, that's one end of that is used to screw screws into something, right? I can, if I want, flip it around and use the back of that to hammer in nails. But that's not what that gift is for. That's a misuse of that gift. In a similar way, you could, be, you could be given the nicest treadmill you've ever seen. It could be worth thousands of dollars. But if all it does is hang clothes on it, 
That's not the proper use of that gift, although that's what we've all done, I'm sure, at times. It's not been used as often as it should have or been used in the way it was designed, but that, that's why I want to illustrate that point, that spirit baptism and this ability with these languages is a gift, but both spirit baptism and tongues, if you will, have different applications, have different distinctions, and have different uses for different times, places, and settings. We're getting kind of into nitty-gritty a little bit, but I think it's important, again, with not knowing what everyone's background or experience is, to try to paint as broad a picture, as deep as we can get in a few minutes on what is maybe biblical and what maybe is not. Let me say this again. Spirit baptism and the gift of tongues that comes with it has different applications, different distinctions, and different uses for different times, places, and settings. The two main distinctions that we see in Scripture are that it can be used personally and privately, or it can be used corporately and publicly, especially the, the, the sign, the gift of tongues that comes with spirit baptism, okay? So there, the two main distinctions, again, are it can be used personally and privately in one way, which we'll talk about, or also corporately and publicly in a different way. And the main way to distinguish those two is one of the other spiritual gifts that we read briefly, and that is... Um, I'm getting ahead of myself, sorry. So the two distinctions, again, private and public. So there is this idea of a gift of tongues where you pray in tongues. That's different than the gift of tongues in a corporate setting, okay? So let's look here. We'll see this distinction in two scriptures. I held up one finger, but it's two. Uh, so Jude, the next to last book of the Bible, Jude verses 20 and 21, Jude talks about one of these distinctions specifically, I think. He says, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, Pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life. In this way, you will keep yourself safe in God's love. So that part I have underlined there, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how it's translated in the New Living Translation. Other translations, I think, that are a, a bit closer, a bit better, uh, is just simply pray in the Holy Spirit. I think the NIV has that, uh, among others. Not in the power of the Holy Spirit, but pray in the Holy Spirit. Look at these three instructions from Jude here quickly. He says, build each other up, pray in the Spirit, and await the return of Jesus. Those are the three instructions here in these two verses in Jude. So we begin to see here a personal benefit to praying in this spiritual language. It's a personal, private benefit that I think Jude is getting at here. Because he says, we build each other up. That's between us. But then he says, pray in the Spirit. So what that does, I think, is the, is the inverse of that. We encourage each other, we build each other up, but even Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we'll get to in a minute, that praying in the, with the gift of tongues builds you up personally. It edifies you. And I think there's two, two reasons for that. One, it is this, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, it is sort of this mysterious communication directly to God from you. You don't even know exactly what you're praying. You don't even know what it is, but it's, this, it's a mystery, Paul says. So it builds up our faith. And there's a second way that I, it may, I hope it's not too crude, but this is the way that I explain how this builds up your faith, praying in the Spirit, is if I have faith to believe that this unintelligible language that I'm speaking to God actually means something, and that God can actually understand that, if I really believe that, if I have faith to believe that, that's going to then, I think, increase my faith overall to believe God can do anything. If he can use that strange, odd, different, weird gift in a way that I don't understand, that can then build my faith, increase my faith, edify me to believe God even more for what other things he might want to do, especially other things he might want to do that I'm not expecting or don't understand. So that, that's sort of the way that I try to explain the second benefit of that. It is communication with God, but then it does build us up. But now we look at this gift from God. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 for a bit, where Paul really gets into the second distinction of this sign, this gift of spirit baptism. And it's in a corporate public church setting. So private, this private prayer language Jude talks about a little bit. Paul does here a bit too, but he focuses big time on this church in Corinth that's sort of out of control. They're hyper-spiritual. They're over-spiritual. They're not really mature enough to know what to do. He's giving them this letter of instruction and correction on how to balance all of this out. So 1 Corinthians 14, we'll start in verses 18 and 19. 
Paul writes this, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. So that's personal, private, okay? But in a church meeting, I would rather speak five understandable words to help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. That's the second distinction Paul's getting at. He's affirming he personally, privately prays in tongues. He says more than any of you. That's the one distinction. But I'd rather speak intelligible words in a church setting to edify the body. That's the corporate public setting. And that's the real reason I think that he gets to 1 Corinthians 14 is he's trying to help us not to conflate these two uses of this spiritual gift. He's showing us there's a distinction. There are two sides to this coin of this spiritual gift of these languages, of these tongues. And they're not the same. They're not to be used in the same way. Even last week, we, we mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians 14, he says, let everything be done decently and in order. That's at the very end of this section on spiritual gifts in a church setting. He says, spiritual gifts, when they're used even correctly, seem weird, seem odd, seem out of control, but there's a difference between that and it actually being out of control. So he's trying to give instruction here on how to do that properly and correctly. Here's the main, I got ahead of myself because I was ready for this, Okay. Here's the main distinction between the personal private use of this gift and the corporate public use of this gift. And that is the spiritual gift of interpretation that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12. That's a distinguishing factor that help us differentiate between the two sides of this coin. Let me give you two examples that Paul sort of gives here without reading all of 1 Corinthians 14 because, again, we don't have that much time. Um, here's what he says. If someone speaks out in an unknown language or in tongues in a church gathering, Paul instructs that someone else present who has been given the spiritual gift of interpretation should pray to receive the interpretation of that message in an unknown language. And actually, Paul's preference is, I would rather the person that spoke in tongues pray that they would receive the interpretation from God and give it themselves. I've seen that happen where it's the same person that does both. Uh, more often, my experience has been it's one person with the gift of tongues, one person with the gift of interpretation, and, and for some reason, this person doesn't know that language. That person didn't know that language, but somehow the Holy Spirit gave them the interpretation of that language. Okay? That's what Paul's saying. That if it's in a church service, someone speaks out in this language that no one knows, someone better have that gift of interpretation so everybody know what's going on. But he does, he does say what happens if that doesn't happen. He says if that happens and there's no interpretation given, he says the first person that spoke out should remain silent, and then the, the body should consider that that sort of ecstatic utterance, as it's called, was really meant just for them and God because there's no interpretation, even though they kind of got maybe overly excited. And I've seen that happen as well, and it's really awkward when that happens. <laughs> Someone speaks out in tongues, and you wait, and you wait, and you wait for interpretation, and it doesn't happen, and then you're like, okay, is someone going to do this? Is anyone going to do this? And then, uh, you know, like if you're the pastor and you're kind of leading this thing, you have to kind of get up and hope that you're not <laughs> going to speak when the Holy Spirit's trying to speak or whatever, and, and it's just weird. But it, Paul even says it, it happens, and, and I've experienced that um, as well. So the, the point then is the interpretation should give instruction for people to know what's happening. And here's why that matters. Let's go back up to the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 14. Paul tells us why that distinction matters, why interpretation matters, why there's two different uses of this gift. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Let love, remember he's coming out of chapter 13, let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially, there it is, the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking only to God. That's private, personal. Since people won't be able to understand you, you'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. That's public. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally, private, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. And then Paul says this, so if you're still a cessationist, you've got to disagree with Paul. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could all prophesy, for prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues unless someone interprets what you are saying 
so that the whole church will be strengthened. So he is very key. He is very intentional on hammering this point home. You can speak in tongues personally, privately, all you want to talk to God, to edify yourself, to strengthen yourself. Paul says, I do it more than all of you. But if you're going to do it publicly in a church service, there are parameters to that. There is an actual use to that. It's not just everybody out for themselves. It's not just willy-nilly. There is still order in the Spirit. We see this in Acts 2, don't we? We see, in a way, an interpretation of tongues, okay? So the people who are inside experience the wind, experience the fire, speak in tongues. They do not know what they're saying. They've never heard this before. They can't interpret it. No one in the room can. However, the people outside hear their own languages, and they're from out of town. So I'm not saying that the people outside have a gift of interpretation. What I'm saying is, in this instance, that gift wasn't needed. Because the person speaking in this language was speaking in an actual language where the person present was there to understand it. I've got a couple of uh, examples I'll give at near the end here in a minute to illustrate that that still happens even, even now. Um, so, again, I'm going to beat the dead horse one more time to make sure I'm getting this right, okay? Make sure I'm consistent here. Paul, is, and Paul says, well, before I get to that, let me say one more thing. When it comes to the tongues in a church service and interpretation in a church service, Paul says, it's interesting here, he says, tongues is a sign for an unbeliever. And I would say, yeah, you're right, Paul, that would get an unbeliever's attention real quick. If they hear something like that at church, they're gonna, it's going to get their attention. But then he says the interpretation of the tongue is for believers. It's for the body. And it's the same reason I think that he elevates prophecy over any other gift, because people can understand what's being said. So it's helpful to them. It's beneficial to them. It's instructive to them. So one more time, private prayer, no interpretations needed here. That's never mentioned in, in Paul's letters, anywhere in the New Testament. It's not there. So you don't have to know what you're praying if you use this gift to pray directly to God. It's not necessary. It's just for you and God. But in a public setting, if this public gift is used in a corporate setting, an interpretation is required so that it has the full effect of building up the body that's present. So that's, that explains how to properly use uh, that gift from God that comes with this spirit baptism. Here's the fourth thing that we'll finish on, then I'll finish with a couple of examples uh, before we close. The fourth part of this is really the most important part, or the, the whole point. The purpose of spirit baptism is for spirit-empowered ministry. We've talked about tongues a lot, but that's just a, a sign of this event experience. It is not the point. That's a lot of times where charismatics get off. They, the, the sign becomes the point. It's all about tongues. It's all about prophecy. It's all about interpretation. It's all about these things. It's not. Those are signs that come after this experience that we see in Acts 2. The purpose is for spirit-empowered ministry. Again, Acts 1.8 Jesus does not say you will receive spiritual gifts when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He doesn't say you'll be able to speak in these languages when the Spirit comes upon you. He says you'll receive power. It's right there in the title. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. We get fixated on the signs because they're flashy and they're weird and they're attention-getting and they are powerful and have their place, but the purpose is the power that comes from this experience and from this gift. So when the believers are first baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, 1 through 4, what happens? Does this follow through? Let's pick it up at Acts 2, verse 5. We referenced it a minute ago, but let's look at it from the book right here. At that time, so they're speaking in these languages, at that time there were devout Jews from every nation living in, they're, they're visiting Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our native languages. And it lists the cities and towns and nations where they're from, so we'll skip those. You can read that in your own time and try to pronounce those names. I'm not falling for it. Verse, <laughs> verse 11, 
It says both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, that's the end of the list. It says this, and we hear, and we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. That's the purpose right there. Peter's sermon afterward is the power that was the purpose that he needed from that moment on. Spirit baptism gave them power accompanied by a sign that was these tongues, but for the purpose of being witnesses or to tell the wonderful things God has done. And then after this moment in Acts 2, this whole thing just grew and grew and matured and exploded. They had already, again, received the Holy Spirit's salvation. They already received that, but Jesus told them in Acts 1, there's more. Wait for it. And they believed it, they received it, and they experienced this added power from the Holy Spirit after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And what it did is it propelled them forward in power to accomplish all that God had for them moving forward. The rest of the book of Acts would look very, very different if not for Acts 2, 1 through 4. Now, some of us might prefer that we didn't have Acts 1, 2, 1 through 4 because it's weird, makes us uncomfortable, or goes against what we were taught or the tradition that we grew up with, or we don't quite understand or are not bought in. That's okay. The purpose today is just to show you that it's there and the, it's consistent throughout Scripture, and I think, again, still for today. And to illustrate that, let me tell you three quick current stories about uh, this idea of tongues and spirit baptism and that sort of thing. Two of these stories, I, I personally know the people that were in these accounts. One of them I'll mention at the end. I don't know personally, but most of you have heard of him, uh, and, and I trust his, his testimony here. So let me just say this before I tell the stories. No personal experience is equal to Scripture. Okay? No personal experience is equal to or greater than Scripture. So just because this happened to me at one time... If the Bible can't back it up, I have to second-guess the genuineness of that experience. And I've, I've, growing up in a Pentecostal charismatic church, I've had to do a lot of that. I've had to wrestle with a lot of what I've seen or experienced or heard or whatever. And d does the Bible affirm this, confirm this? If not, maybe I'm going to have to throw that out um, and deal with that later on. So, but, so what I'm saying is your experience doesn't equal or trump Scripture, but it should align with it what I'm saying. So as I tell these experiences, just keep that in mind. So this is maybe 30 or so years ago. There was a group of U.S. ministers, and they were ministering in uh, Africa. So they would have a translator in these gatherings, these church services they would host. They did all kinds of work, all kinds of missions, all sorts of building projects and services and tent revivals, that sort of thing. So it's near the end uh, of this meeting near the end of their time there, and they have the pastors there, American pastors, are having lunch with some of the local pastors there in, in the area. So they have, you know, people, uh, some women and girls that are uh, just serving them their lunch, bringing them drinks, filling up their water, whatever. So everything's going fine. They're talking about what God's done, all this kind of stuff, normal lunch. All of a sudden, one of the girls, probably 12 or 13, who'd been serving them, runs into where they're eating and all of a sudden, she just thanks God for what he's done while they've been there, and she thanks them for coming, and she's ready for revival and what God's going to do, and she runs back out into the kitchen. And so the U.S. pastors are like, that's wonderful, praise God, that's amazing, you know, we're so glad God's confirmed that. And one of the pastors, local pastor, says, hold on a second, I know that girl, she doesn't know English. She's, until you came, she's never met an English-speaking person in her life. So God used this 13-year-old girl in the gift of tongues that had the interpretation there. There wasn't a gift needed. They didn't even know it was tongues till they were told afterward. To what? To declare the wonderful works of God. Same thing that we see in Acts chapter 2. That was the purpose, and it worked its purpose out. Uh, there was a uh, pastor friend of mine who uh, had this experience when he was in college. He was attending uh, uh, Assembly of God Church, and uh, it was fairly charismatic, so tongue interpretation is pretty normal. So there was a message in tongues that was given. Wait a couple seconds. Someone else on the other side of the room gave the interpretation in English. And this was in Florida. Um, and the church kind of, you know, has a moment, and then they just move on. So a, a moment later, a man had come up from the balcony and walked down to the front, right, and stood right here in front. And the pastor notices him and says, sir, is there something I can help you with? And he said, well, the first person that spoke a moment ago said that if I wanted to find out how to receive salvation to come to the front. And the pastor, he said, wait, what? 
He said the first person, there were two people that spoke, the first person that spoke, uh, so he was from a small island nation in Asia, just a few hundred people that speak the language he spoke. The first person that spoke in tongues spoke his language. He was sitting in the balcony, not saved, but he understood that tongue. And he came down because the tongue, the message was, come down to the front if you want to learn how to receive Jesus. So the pastor prayed with him right there to receive Christ, and he serves Jesus, I guess, to this day. I don't know. Here's an interesting thing about that. The interpretation, that was not the interpretation that was given in English. So that person technically was wrong. Now, no one would have known that had this person not been there. They would have assumed it's a language that we've never heard but probably exists somewhere, and God gave this person the gift to interpret. Well, not quite. They probably had good intentions. Right? They, they didn't mean to you know, lie to anyone. They weren't saying, ha-ha, I know what that means. I'm going to say this other thing. That wouldn't make any sense. But you can see how this kind of can get messy, right? We can't explain it. We can't control it. Things just sort of happen. That may happen more often than we like, might like to admit, especially growing up. I would guarantee you that that happens quite a bit, which is why, again, people want to pull away from this phenomenon. Um, but I would still say, like Paul, let's eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Here's the last one. Um, that, again, I don't know this person, obviously, but you've probably heard of Jack Hayford. Uh, leader of the Foursquare Church, a leader of a large church before that. He actually just passed away at the beginning of this year. So one of his books, he writes about an occasion. He was sitting in an airplane going from one place to another, and this man dressed in this really nice, expensive suit sits down next to him. And he, they just make small talk. Hi, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. My name's Jack. My name's Bob or whatever. And Jack Hayford, he says, I kind of just briefly commented on this man's accent. It was a very interesting sort of southerny type of accent. And he said, well, you know... Um, yeah, my, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I grew up with speech problems. My mother was full-blown Kiowa Native American, and so we kind of grew up, you know, speaking that a little bit at the house, and so learning English to get into school was kind of tough for me, and I've always been con self-conscious about my, about my uh, speaking ability. And he said, oh, I didn't mean any offense. He said, no, 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 I'm just kind of, you know, telling you where I'm from. So they chat for 30, 40 minutes, and then they go and they read what they're reading, and, and all of a sudden, Jack Hayford writes, the Holy Spirit said to me, speak to this man in tongues. And he's like, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. And he said, so we were just reading for maybe another half hour. I just let it go. I'm not, I'm not going to be this crazy charismatic on this airplane next to this businessman. Again, the Holy Spirit said, speak to this man in tongues. And he's like, how, what am, how am I going to do that? What am I, how, what, how do you just bring that up? How do you just start doing that to the guy in the you know, seat next to you? So then they stop. They, he sort of has a pause in what he's reading, and he he takes a chance here, goes out on a limb. He, he says this guy next to him, he says, so I, I've been doing some uh, research and I've come across this language in my research uh, that I'm not familiar with. I've never seen or heard it before. I, I wonder, maybe because you're an international businessman, if maybe you might recognize some of the words or phrases or, or whatever. Um, and the guy said, sure, that's fine. So Jack Hayford writes that in that moment, he began to speak in tongues to this man and he said, I noticed something. He said, I'd never heard myself speak in that type of spiritual language ever before, personally, privately, ever. This is maybe about, about a paragraph long, and then I just, in a conversational way, just saying these words to him, and then I just stop, and I say, so do you recognize any of that? Does that mean anything to you? And the man said, well, I, I didn't understand everything, but I got the gist of it. And he's like, Really? And the man said, actually, that's an ancient dialect of my mother's family's Native American language. It's a Kiowan ancient dialect. And he's like, okay, so what's, what's the gist of what I, what, I, what I just said? He said, basically what you were saying is something about a great light coming down from above. And so Jack Hayford used that moment where the interpretation, there wasn't another person that needed to know the gift because the man already knew it, um, but he let, used the opportunity to preach the gospel to him and lead him to the Lord on the airplane. Again, the purpose of this gift, as strange as it is, as really strange as that account is, led to proclaiming the works of God through this gift that came from this experience of spirit baptism. I'll close again by saying what is obvious about this topic. This may be a lot for you. This may seem weird or strange to you. I've been in it all my life. It still fits that description for me. It may seem scary or off-putting to you, but let me ask you this question genuinely. Do you want all that God has available for you? 
If God is offering you an exper- a spiritual experience, do you want that? If God is offering you gifts in addition to your salvation for use in powerful, spirit-filled ministry, are you open to those things? Even though they're different, weird, scary, odd. Spirit baptism is still available to you, your children, and all those that are afar off. This supernatural power that comes with that. Again, tongues is not the point. I cannot emphasize that enough. That's not the point. That is a sign. The point is for spirit-filled, spirit-empowered ministry. Again, I'll say this, and then we'll close for real this time. I'm not trying to be weird today, okay? I don't want to be weird. We're going to be the same church we've always been. However, I want all that God has for us. I want everything that God has for you. I want us to be available and open and willing to whatever God has. So in just a moment, I'm going to close in prayer. And I'm going to ask that if you're open and receptive to this experience, that you would just pray to have this experience with God. Now, it might happen in this moment where you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you have this gift of tongues and it changes your life. It may not happen right now. It may happen to where you're on the way home in your car thinking about, praying about what God, and all of a sudden, Spirit baptizes you. You start speaking in tongues in your car. What's going on? Just stay on the road. Don't close your eyes like it's fine. You know, that's fine. Maybe it'll happen tonight before you go to bed. You're praying, thinking about what we talked about. Okay, God, I'm open. All of a sudden, you have this experience that we see in Acts 2. Maybe it's weeks or months from now. You're not even thinking about it, and all of a sudden, you have this experience happen to you. I'm not saying it's going to happen right now or has to happen right now. Uh, Some people... I've prayed all week about how to close this out. That's why I'm kind of explaining my thought process. Some people would have people come up, and we're going to pray right now and be here for hours and hours. We could go that route. I just don't feel, I have not felt all week that God wants us to do that in that way today. Maybe it's because we're just kind of getting our feet wet. Um, I don't know why. Uh, so I'm just going to pray a prayer, a closing prayer, about us being open and receptive to all that God has. And if you're open and receptive to all that God has, we'll just see what he does together, okay? Amen. So God, we do want all that you have. And we know that you have so much for us. We thank you that the ultimate greatest gift that you give us is salvation. Jesus, you came from heaven to earth to save us from our sins. And then when you left earth to go back to heaven, you promised the gift of Holy Spirit. You promised this spirit baptism. And you give these accompanying spiritual gifts that come with that uh, experience. And I know that it's odd and strange and different for some in the room, some that are watching or listening even later on, but I pray that we'd be open to whatever you want, whatever you have, to not try to limit what you want or what you have, to not be limited by what we don't have or don't want, but that we would meet you right in the middle. You offer us this experience, you offer us these gifts, so may we be open and receptive to the Holy Spirit in a new way, in a deeper way than we've ever experienced before. For the purpose, not of goosebumps, not of an experience, not of these languages, not of spiritual gifts, but of power for spirit-filled ministry to be done through us. Help us to be open and receptive in this moment now of prayer, on our way home, doing our business this week, that we would just have an openness and receptiveness to all that your Holy Spirit wants to do in us, to then do through us. Help us, be with us, and fill us with your Holy Spirit to overflowing, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.